HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I know... All of them are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today we have a great episode, which is part one of a three-part series that we are doing on restaurant delivery and food delivery. It's definitely something that we have been looking at on this show. We did a show about delivery services, asking the question how good they are for restaurants back in September of 2015. If you're interested in taking the Tech Bytes time machine back a few years, that is episode number 31. And it's something that we've been following over the course of the past few years because delivery is certainly something that has expanded and the pandemic of 2020 certainly accelerated that process even further. It is something that is here to stay. It is a part of our social restaurant lifestyle ecosystem. And it really is in a point of evolution right now. There's so much to talk about in the delivery space. We thought it would be best to break it into three parts. So today we have part one, and we have two very smart ladies on the show today to talk about how delivery works. How do the companies like DoorDash and Seamless make their money? What's the relationship between the apps, the restaurants, the restaurants, the delivery people, the technology? What what does the actual ecosystem look like out there today and how is it working? Joining us is Claire Brown. She is a writer for thecounter.org. You may remember her from the Grubhub Gate episode, which is one episode 184. Um, This is her space of of expertise, and she follows the story from a journalistic point of view. Claire, thank you for uh, coming back to talk about delivery again. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like it's been a really, really long time since you were on the show, longer than actually the time is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it certainly feels like much longer. And when you were on the show last, we were actually physically in the studio at Roberta's. Oh, yes. I remember that clearly. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a very different experience. 
Joining her is Elaine Russell, who was recently just on the show, um, episode 234 on ultra-fast grocery delivery. She uh, manages the ACI fund at Graycroft, and she has an interesting point of view about delivery apps and the interaction between apps and restaurants and consumers, because she's looking at them from a financial point of view. How do they work? How do they make the money? What's the traction? What's the gross room in the market? And so it is a different point of view and a different evaluation point, also something that's very much in in flux and in evolution right now. Um, And she's also calling in from the West Coast, so I want to thank you for getting up extra early today to talk to us. No problem. Thank you for having me. So I, you know, when we started talking about doing this series and doing this show, it's almost as if the delivery space is evolving so rapidly. Um, Some of the questions and topics that we talked about um, prior to this episode almost seem uh, to be old news in some respects. There was recently an article in the New York Times that was talking about the current landscape of delivery app third-party apps, the fee caps, how companies are dealing with that. And there was a very interesting statistic that came out, and that was that um, DoorDash in the first quarter of this year has actually processed more than $9 billion in orders. They processed $9.9 billion in the first quarter, and they're anticipating that they're going to process $9.4 to $9.9 billion in orders the second quarter of the year, and a quarter is three months. And that is a huge amount of money. And part of that is increased due just to the natural growth in the space, but a lot of that is due simply to the pandemic um, when people were sheltering in place at home and they needed food and they turned to delivery services. So with that much money... um, transacting hands, um, it's almost unbelievable to a certain extent. Elaine, I'm going to ask you because you're looking at the financial end of these things. Is is that a, are those surprising numbers? Is that something that, is that growth that was anticipated or are we in a place where the delivery market is just something so big and so powerful? It's, it's really unexpected. Um, I, I mean, I think those numbers are massive. I agree with you. Um, we're seeing something that we've never seen before around delivery. Um, obviously, a lot of that is relating to going through a pandemic and, and behaviors, consumer behavior really shifting. But um, surprising, yes, but I think we're in a new frontier here and um, it, there's probably more to come. So growth is happening at hundreds of percentages, 200%, 300%. It looks like about 70% of consumers are saying they are going to continue to order online. So with all that behavior happening adjacent to that, we have how do the third-party apps and delivery services actually make their money? And one way we know that they make their money is that they charge a fee for each delivery. And we know that because part of the news cycle during the pandemic was that governments, local governments, were trying to put a cap on the percentage fees that these services could charge restaurants in order to help restaurants have a little bit of a softer economic environment so they could survive a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, Claire, I know that you spend a lot of time looking at this space and and sort of following these stories. 
what's the evolution that's happening right now in terms of the the fee structures and governments trying to cap that to help restaurants? And we're kind of coming to the end of those protective caps. Mm -hmm. So yeah, prior to the pandemic, the fee cap was something that restaurants would talk about a lot. Um, It was always kind of shrouded in mystery. Grub would publicly say, you know, our average is X percent. And then restaurants would report that their commissions, when you include sales, when you include promotion, would creep up to 25, 33%. And they would creep up very slowly and in these kind of sneaky ways. So I interviewed one restaurant owner who joined Grubhub, made a ton of money, got really high ratings. And then all of a sudden realized she wasn't making rent and she kind of investigated her own invoices and realized it was because of this fee creep. So at the beginning of the pandemic, recognizing that times were really, really hard for restaurant owners, a lot of city councils moved very, very quickly to cap fees at 10 or 15%. And by and large, the the platforms complied, right? They, they did not want to run afoul of local governments. Um, and then what we saw was kind of these random fees popping up on the consumer side of things. So if I'm in New York ordering a Grubhub, it may be that the restaurant is paying $1.50 on a $15 order, but all of a sudden I'm seeing a $3 service fee or a $150 service fee. And so there are all these kind of weird um, ancillary fees that readers start pointing out to us. And what we're seeing now is that a lot of city councils are considering making these fee caps permanent because it's very popular with restaurants who have a lot of local political clout, having been members of the community through this really tough time. And uh, we have Grubhub and, and Seamless and their ilk kind of seeing, okay, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our business model? So in order to continue to recoup funds, these fees seem to be the place, one of the places where the companies are adding, adding, adding dollars to make up for the different caps. Elaine, I'll ask you, you know, in terms of looking at these companies as, um, you know, perhaps investment opportunities or how, how, how successful they are going to be, You know, I don't know that a lot of consumers actually are understanding how these third-party platforms work and make their money. Certainly, um, you know, from Claire's reporting and other stories that we read in the news, and certainly on the show that we did back in 2015, there is a lot of mystery shrouded around how they work. And to the even to the extent of Um, The restaurant owners that we spoke with, they spoke anonymously on the show because there are non-disclosure clauses in many of the contracts that, you know, restaurants sign to start to work with these different companies. So, but they're making a lot of money and, you know, something like DoorDash, they become a public company based on the veracity of their earning potential. And today, you know, that company is trading at almost $180 a share on the stock market. So how, how do these companies actually make their money? Yeah, I mean, um, companies like DoorDash, you know, they are charging, as you guys know, a a certain amount for the consumer, for the food. They're adding these fees, which, as we just mentioned, are sometimes changing. Um, And uh, there's obviously tax and tip. Um, So 
what DoorDash is actually taking away from that, because um, after that, after they collect from the consumer, they're sending um, back to the merchant, the restaurant, and the delivery um, dasher, they call, but um, everybody has their own term. The delivery person that they are using, the courier, um, is taking a large percentage of that as well. Um, and so usually, you know, after paying out government taxes, the merchant, the dasher, um, DoorDash is usually keeping around 15% um, of the order. So, you know, while we look at these GMV, these gross merchandised value numbers of in the nine to 10 billion, I think it's incredibly impressive. But I think one thing we need to keep in mind is that DoorDash um, and all of these delivery businesses, they are a, a take rate business in the sense that um, they do not have high margins. Um, they're not like a software business that is um, can be incredibly profitable off of a $9 billion um, top line. These businesses are doing, you know, on average about 15%. And it sounds like that's going to be kind of fluctuating going forward, but 15% take rate off of that top line. So um, the name of the game for these these delivery apps is really scale. Um, and the only way that they actually are able to start becoming, um, moving towards profitability is, um, is increasing that top line GMV number to as high as possible um, so that they have uh, enough margin to cover costs. So I, it's, a, it's, it's actually a trickier game for the um, delivery app um, and, it, you know, it's challenging to cover expenses for this delivery model, not only for the merchant, but for the delivery app as well. I'll put it that way. And do, do we have a sense of where all those fees are going? I, I think that from what I've heard from um, restaurant people and delivery people and just consumers, um, and also in the media, many consumers often think that the delivery charge or the local service charge is actually money that is going to the delivery person in some instances. Um, I've heard um, and seen you know, commentary about, well, there's a delivery charge or a delivery service fee, and that's the money that goes to the delivery person, and that's their tip, and maybe I don't need to tip them because they're getting that $3. Is that a correct assessment or is the delivery fee, the Chicago fee, the local fee, just adding money to take that 15% off the top? I think that, you know, part of that is going to the dasher um, and, and to the delivery person, the courier. But, you know, if we want to break it down um, and if you look at, let's say, a $30 order for a consumer, including fees, so $30, let's say the food was $20 you know, you have tax, you have tip and consumer fees, um, et cetera, which probably add up to another $10. So a third of the, um, or really 50% of the costs um, added on at the end. Um, the merchant, the restaurant is getting paid out around $20 of that. Um, and the dasher will keep on a $30 order, probably around $8 of that. Um, and then the uh, DoorDash will keep about $5, so about 15%. Um, so, you know, it kind of gets all bucketed together. But I think at the end of the day, you know, 
DoorDash has to employ these um, these dashers where they're getting paid based on um, route, like number of deliveries they have per hour um, and how far that they're driving. So the answer sort of is it depends. It's a little bit more complicated than saying every order is the, you know gets paid out the same because um, the dasher is being paid um, based on their route density. And so that's sort of why I, I like to call this type of business really a route density business where um, you know they are more profitable, DoorDash, the, the more dense of an area or the more um, orders they can do per route. Um, but if they're doing one delivery um, in an hour in a certain geography, uh, they're going to be incredibly unprofitable because of the overhead of that, the paying of the dasher to be there to do one delivery. Um, most likely DoorDash will take home very little of all of those fees. Um, and if they're able to route plan and have enough orders to pump through, um, you know, 10, 20 orders during that same one hour period of time with that same dasher, um, then their profitability will go up a lot higher. It's a, it's a fascinating um, thing to think about. And um, of course, volume is, is always, volume is, is always the way to make money, certainly, especially um, in restaurants, you know, it's, it's volume and scale. How can you scale something up? Um, you know, Claire, you have done a lot of reporting around, you know, this, how, you know, the third-party apps make money and add different things. And it sounds like we're at a juncture where they're going to start to be a little bit maybe creative about how, you know, they are recouping funds. Can you talk to us a little bit about initially what Grubhub Gate was and then now moving forward onto, you know, the phone numbers and the different ways that, you know, the different line items that restaurants are charged through the order process with the consumer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my reporting in 2019 revealed that um, Grubhub was setting up uh, websites in the names of some of its restaurant clients, right? So if my, I'm, you know, Surfside Deli and Grocery, it's possible that Grubhub bought the do- domain name SurfsideDeliAndGrocery.com and set it up so that every link links back to my Grubhub page. And Grubhub said, you know, this is a marketing boon for the restaurants um, and it helps them show up higher on Google, blah, blah, blah. Um, And the restaurants we talked to said, we didn't know this was happening. And in some instances, restaurants had their own website and the Grubhub website would actually show up higher than the restaurant's website. And the reason that that makes a difference for their bottom line is that if you order through the Grubhub website, Grubhub gets that commission, that marketing commission, because the company can basically claim, we showed the customer the existence of your restaurant. And restaurants would say, well, that's not fair. You just showed up earlier in the Google results. My people already know me and they're searching for my name. Therefore, I shouldn't have to pay the commission. And the same thing was true with phone numbers. Um, Yelp 
uh, Yelp's uh, food service, uh, which was kind of short-lived, was acquired, and the phone numbers on Yelp were going back to Grubhub in many instances. So you call, you know, if you call a restaurant directly to place an order, in many cases, um, Grubhub will not recruit that fee. But if you call a a phone number owned by Grubhub um, and it's routed through their recording system, then Grubhub will recoup that fee. So it was these kind of sneaky ways that restaurants weren't necessarily aware of that the platform was kind of um, putting its own marketing skin and marketing sheen on top of existing business in order to recoup um, what restaurants argued was unfair commissions. Um, and, and so we reported that and Grubhub did announce some changes. They uh, rolled out a platform where the restaurants pay no fee for pickup orders and um, they, there were a couple of other small changes. They, they agreed to transfer domain names back to restaurants. I've heard a lot less from restaurants complaining about this issue in the last year, but I also think it's just been such an incredibly hard year for restaurants that Grubhub fees are, are kind of, you know, 10th on the list of priorities. Yep. It was definitely something that was a topic of interest and investigation and restaurants looking at, you know, how the relationship between the delivery services and their bottom line actually works. And then the pandemic, you know, was a huge pause button. And then when everything came back on, started to come back online, the environment was completely different. Um, There there was notably uh, another um, article um, online um, in 2020, just very at the beginning, even before the pandemic, in salon, like just before the, 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 the close down and, you know, shelter in place and all those things that essentially said that, you know, the drivers were making maybe like, you know, a dollar 50 an hour, a dollar 45 an hour, you know, to Elaine's point that if you're not having volume and, you know, you finish paying out your expenses, you know, it, it, it's not tenable. Um, how, how do things become tenable? is an interesting question, I think. You know, we do have, you know, success for companies like DoorDash financially on paper. Certainly, you know, those are really breathtaking numbers in terms of the dollars that they're going to do and that they're processing. But then how do, you know, how do those dollars trickle down into the rest of the ecosystem? So when we come back, we will ask Claire and Elaine that question. But before we do, we're going to find out who is supporting Heritage Radio and our ecosystem of reporting and broadcasting and archiving important food stories. We are a member-supported radio. We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, who are many of whom are listeners like you and underwriters like this one. Stay with us. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a new brand identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and to dig through our archive of over 15,000 episodes. It's been 11 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that this show is on the air, along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio in Roberta's. 
becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows us how much food radio means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today we are looking at delivery apps, delivery apps like DoorDash and Seamless, how they work and how they make their money. It is part one of a three-part delivery delivery series that we are doing right now on Tech Bites. It's such a big topic. There's so much to discuss and so many um, interchangeable parts Delivery, home delivery of food has become um, something that was almost like a nice luxury or convenience and has evolved into something that is more than a convenience, um, a part of life. And at a certain time in 2020 was almost essential to survival. And it's an interesting idea when we think about the people on the ground making and delivering the food as essential people. Um, But I don't know that those essential restaurants and those essential workers are going to have a $10 billion quarter this year like DoorDash. So we're talking with Claire Brown, who's writer at thecounter.org. If you want to follow her work, visit thecounter.org. And also speaking with Elaine Russell, who runs the ACI fund at Graycroft. Um, They're both looking at the delivery ecosystem to report on it from two very distinct point of views. Um, Elaine is looking at it from really a financial and an economic point of view. How is money get made? Is it profitable? Does it have an opportunity for growth? Elaine, when you um, read headlines about, you know, delivery people and what's happening with them on the ground, and then you see um, the financial reports with these just really impressive, enormous numbers How do those two things square from an investment and evaluation point of view? Well, you know, I still kind of stand by the sense that, you know, it's a it's a bit of a slippery slope when looking at some of these um, delivery apps, because, yes, um, you know, you have to kind of look at two different things. One is. Um, just pure financials. And I think if you actually looked at those, it becomes a fairly unattractive business, actually. Um, you know, yes, it's a DoorDash reported $9 billion in, in a quarter, but they're, they're still a wildly unprofitable company. Um, so they haven't figured out how to actually make money off of that quite yet. They're moving towards that. Um, but again, it is a scale um, and a density business in order to achieve that. And there's a lot of interesting things happening, I think, to to move in that direction. But I think the better way to look at it when you're really evaluating these companies is what is the opportunity and where where is consumer behaviors um, moving towards in the future? Um, You know, in venture, we're not, um, we, we try to almost predict the future, I guess, when we're making investments. Um, so it's not necessarily just today, but, but where is this going to go? And I do think that there's a really interesting path. Um, you know, consumer behavior was jolted into delivery, um, through a pandemic. And, um, even though we're seeing restaurants go back and, and real life kind of trickle back in here, um, you know, I, my belief is that some of these behaviors that were introduced during a pandemic that 
that we learned were actually fairly convenient um, are probably behaviors that we will continue to um, continue to see going forward, food delivery being one of them. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we saw the same thing with grocery ordering online. Um, you know, we do believe that a good portion of that behavior is going to stay, um, stay online. One of the interesting, um, you know, there are so many interesting things to have come out of the pandemic and not to, you know, discount or downplay something that we are still very much in the midst of and, you know, not to downplay, you know, the loss and the, you know, extreme uh, stress that it put the world under. But one of the um, one of the value items reassessment of values that came out of and is coming out of this time, I think, is the reassessment of the value of time. Um, Elaine, you and I had we, we spoke about that on the you know, ultra fast delivery show when people sort of consolidated their life to one single physical space at home, and then you had to start to live and do different things. And what am I going to spend my time doing? Am I going to spend my time working on a Zoom? Am I cooking, going to the store? You know, all those different things. Delivery, the the time that it affords you in, in many instances yeah. became the value proposition in some respects. Yes, everybody needs food and needs to eat. And, you know, we get delivery, grocery, restaurant or otherwise. But it's also a, a, a change, I think, a little bit in the evaluation of what can I do with my time? I can pay to have something come to my house and then I yeah. don't have to spend the time doing that. And that's an hour or 45 minutes or something that I can spend doing this other activity. Um, yeah. And I think that that is certainly a part of the consumer evolution in terms of their behavior. Now that we have things that are opening back up again and people are going back to restaurants and back to the you know shops and, and grocery stores, you know, there's still this time element. You know, now that I can spend an hour doing my grocery shopping, do I want to? Now that I can spend an hour going to a restaurant, do I want to? Um, or do I want to spend that hour doing something else? And I think that's an yeah. not unimportant, but I have not really, you know, people aren't really necessarily discussing that as a part of the equation in terms of what consumers want. Yeah. Claire, I'll ask you, um, what do you see happening now? We're at an interesting point in, in the restaurant industry where things are, you know, many of the restrictions and reductions that were in place before are now lifted. People are feeling more free to go out and go eat and, you know, businesses are, are happening and you know, so much of what we're reading now is restaurants taking a look at what their bottom line is now and what's happening right now and what they're going to continue or change um, and continue to evolve going forward along with, you know, what local governments are doing. Are you getting a sense of what people are thinking about in terms of what reality and delivery looks like today, which is very different from a year ago, which is very different from two years ago? Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, delivery is, if a restaurant is not set up for delivery, it is tough for them to make it work, right? People are not buying, you know, the highest margin items in a restaurant are drinks. Um, in a restaurant, you can upsell people, you can encourage them to get an appetizer, to get dessert. People are more relaxed. They are not just looking at add to cart and what's my total. They're in a social setting. They're feeling spontaneous. Um, and the restaurant doesn't have to incur the 
not insubstantial costs of, you know, packaging supplies. Um, the little boxes that those things come in can be a dollar a pop, which on a $9 entree is not insignificant. So anecdotally, it seems like restaurants are hoping to have people come back inside for those reasons. The business model just works better when people are drinking and eating and the restaurant is not paying for packaging. That's not to say some restaurants are not built for delivery. Uh, The pizza industry is one obvious example. And many, many restaurants have been extremely successful in kind of reimagining their business models for delivery. But anecdotally, it seems like restaurants are very excited to have people come back in the door. And I will say consumers as well here in New York, um, you know, the social aspect of being able to meet up with friends at a restaurant is something that it seems like folks are really happy to return to, right? It's not just the food and the time. It's the atmosphere. It's the fact that you're not doing the dishes. It's the fact that you're outside of your home in a wonderful dining room that people, I think, derive a lot of joy from that is not just part of the very rigid time versus money equation. Do you you get a sense, um, is there still an little bit of uh, skepticism or animosity or desire for change in terms of the relationship between restaurants and the delivery apps? Do they kind of have a better sense of how they work now? Are people, are restaurant and business owners less surprised about all the fees? Are they just acquiescing and trying to figure out how to live with them? Do, are they going to try and not live with them? Or is it just, it's, it's here and you have to figure out how to work within it. Yeah, well, I, in New York, where I am, there the city council is talking about making the, the um, fee caps permanent. So I think that's something folks are excited about. The other thing I will say that I've seen anecdotally is a lot of restaurants will be on Grubhub and then they'll have a quote unquote special or like the first appetizer and it'll be, say something like, click here for a discount. And then the actual description is like, do not use Grubhub, call us. And so there are all these kind of neat little tricks that they're using to kind of spread the word about the fact that these commissions exist and there's a way to get food from the restaurant you already know and love by kind of subverting the apps entirely. And so I've seen a good bit of that and also a good bit of these kind of other app models springing up. I think from the consumer side of things, if it's easy to order and pay, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of consumer loyalty to say Grubhub versus DoorDash versus Seamless versus what have you. I think people pay more attention to how easy it is to fill their shopping cart, how how high the fees are, and then you know how fast the food gets there. And I'm I think you'd be hard pressed to find a human being who just absolutely loves DoorDash and doesn't love, you know, the restaurant <laughs> that it's supporting. Yeah. If, if I could jump in here too, yeah. I, I um, totally agree. And um, what I was going to add to you um, around consumer behavior and consumer demands going forward, you know, yes, we have this prioritization of time and I think we have this new learned behavior of ordering online, but what also came out of the pandemic is, um, a strong sense of our values and um, community is really high up on those values right now. At least those are that's what we're seeing in the data. And um, and in through that community, it's um, a desire to support our restaurants and our local business owners. And so, um, 
you know, to Claire's point, we don't necessarily see the loyalty at the DoorDash level or the um, delivery app level. We see it at the food level and um, at the at that restaurant level. And you know, whatever is easiest um, to order, that's how we're going to do it. Um, but once layering in some of these these um, values, um, you know, I think there is a desire for consumers to have it more. Um, for them to be able to more easily order directly from the restaurant. Um, we, on a venture side, uh, um, we have been seeing a whole um, new industry really pop up around companies and software companies that are building um, solutions to support restaurants going direct to consumers. Um, so that's been a really interesting trend that we've been seeing and, and kind of supports what Claire's saying around, you know, it's really just about, um, how do we, how do we order from the food, you know, from the restaurant we'd like to order, um, versus a mass loyalty towards a certain delivery app? It's, it's, it's really kind of fascinating from one point of view that the third party delivery apps and delivery has become so prevalent and so much a part of day-to-day life. And yet consumers and people don't, necessarily think very much about how it all works. And I, I'll ask both of you just to kind of close to close out the show. Um, the, you know, the idea of, um, you know, there's definitely something that's here to stay. I think people would be surprised to learn that a $10 billion quarter does not equal really strong profitability. Um, I think people would be surprised to hear about all these hidden fees and costs that restaurants incur and and what the different fees and costs actually mean and and where the money goes. But both of you made the same point, and it's certainly something that we discuss on this show, Um, especially coming through the pandemic. People are voracious about information right now. They are voracious about understanding what the companies they buy from, do, where the money goes, who are their employees, what's their point of view, what are their hiring practices, what other entities do they support, what do they put out into the world, what are they trying to protect in the world, are they environmental or not, all of those things. And, um, you know, people are voracious now about this, you know, things that they believe in and, you know, utilizing companies and services that align with those values. How is it possible or why is it that we have this third-party delivery app, restaurant, delivery person ecosystem, and people don't know very much about it? I mean, to the point, Claire, of things seem to be very shrouded in mystery. Um, to your point, Elaine, I think many listeners would be surprised to hear that you know maybe DoorDash is not super profitable. From each of your perspectives, um, the question is, why don't we have more transparency or more consumer um, understanding and, you know, consumer literacy about how all this works? And do you think that that will change? And if it does change, do you think that that will impact the industry? Who wants to go first? (laughs) I can start. So, you know, um, I do think that um, people care about transparency, um, but I think the most interesting part is that we're going to see more and more 
um, technology and software and, and support towards these local businesses. Um, and really kind of cutting out the middleman, which in this sense, it might be the delivery apps. We'll see. But, um, you know, I do think that consumers are excited for that. We're not only seeing, um, and, and I also think that restaurant owners are sort of ready to take on that, that challenge. It's going to be a challenge for them to manage delivery on their own. Um, to Claire's point, not all restaurants are really set up that way, but we're seeing everything from um, software for them to manage the actual ordering all the way through to um, robotic delivery and drone delivery that will actually aid in, in, um, in the courier side of the food to the consumer. And so I, I think that that's really more where the industry is going to be moving. Um, but at the end of the day, the still the hardest part of this entire equation is getting the consumer's attention. So that customer acquisition side of things, which DoorDash and some of these larger companies are very good at. Claire, certainly, um, certainly you and I have made an effort to inform and share stories. What, what do you think, where do you think the, you know, sort of the mystery of it comes from and, and, you know, what do you think consumers are going to do going forward? Yeah, I mean, so much of media attention in this last year has been on essential workers. And one of the things that I think kind of broke through with consumers in this last year is the situation of the delivery drivers themselves. There was a lot of really excellent reporting around the fact that folks didn't have access to bathrooms and that there was this massive glut of delivery workers because it was largely an undocumented workforce who couldn't access any of the expanded unemployment. And so I think consumers saw restaurants being eligible for PPP, restaurants being eligible for this new restaurant revitalization fund, which is admittedly been a disaster of a rollout but there is help for restaurants. At that same time, there has been very, very little help for workers who, as we've talked about, are still making sub-minimum wage because they are contractors and they're not subject to minimum wage laws. So I see kind of the next wave of consumer sentiment um, kind of bubbling up around the situation of workers. There was this massive fight in California during the pandemic and before about classifying workers as um, employees instead of independent contractors so that they could have access to minimum wage, so that they could have health insurance. Um, and, and that's something that uh, DoorDash, Instacart, Uber Eats spent, you know, over $100 million fighting and, and were able to defeat it in California. Um, and so I think we're going to see that battle play out in New York. We might see it play out on the federal level. So I kind of see the next frontier of consumer issues-based awareness around this being figuring out how these workers are paid. And it's the same with Uber drivers. It's the same with the entire gig economy. I think this classification question is going to be really important moving forward. Classification of the gig economy. Look out for it. It might wind up on your local ballot. It's an interesting thing to look at and talk about and certainly be aware of um, when we want to know, you know, where our food comes from and how it gets to us. I want to thank Claire Brown, who's a writer at thecounter.org. 
Elaine Russell, who manages the ACI Fund at Graycraft, for joining us today. This is part one of our three-part delivery series. Episode two, we will talk to some of those delivery people who bring the food the last mile and what the experience is like for them working in this industry and what things they would like in the future. Um, if you like the show and you're interested in this topic, definitely come back next week and there will be a part three, which is what we think the future of delivery looks like. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.